Welcome to Driving Ahead, NADA's podcast about trends shaping the future of the automotive world. Now, here's your host, Jonathan Collegio. Hey guys, welcome to NADA's podcast, Driving Ahead. I'm Jonathan Collegio, and today's guest is Peter Bulware. You may remember Peter as a four-time NFL Pro Bowler, Defensive Rookie of the Year for the Baltimore Ravens, and 2000 Super Bowl champ. But more important for us, he's the owner-operator of Peter Bulware Toyota in Tallahassee, Florida. Peter, thank you for joining us. Glad to be a part. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So it's an amazing time to be a car dealer, and especially a Toyota dealer, and especially a car dealer in Florida. I really want to ask you about Florida. It's a population magnet right now. People are moving in from all over the country. Just tell us about what the economy is like there and how it's impacting the car business as you see it. Yeah, the economy has been great. The last few years, it's been a boom. As you said, I mean, the population has grown. The housing market has boomed. And it's been really, really great for the Southeast. Again, you know, our crowds are bigger. You wait in line a little bit longer, traffic's a little bit more. But again, it just seems like people, they want to come to our great state of Florida. I love Florida. I've been a part of the state for a really, really long time. But again, we're seeing an influx and it's been really, really good. So now you were originally from South Carolina, but you played at Florida State. And it sounds like your time at Florida State had an impact on you. Now you played for Bobby Bowden. Tell us what that was like. What did you learn from him as a player? He was a great football coach, but probably even more than that, just an incredible mentor and leader. And I think that's the thing that I took away from him more than I did football, just how to be a man, how to be a leader. And really the four years I was with him, he emphasized, look, football will last a little while, but your impact on the community, what you do after football is the thing that really, really matters. And that's the things that, that you really need to focus on. And today as a dealer, today as a businessman, I, I do fall back on a lot of those lessons, those leadership lessons, the things that I learned from Coach Bowden about being a leader and a person in the community. I use that now. And so just so thankful for me to be able to learn probably under one of our generation's greatest leaders. So that's interesting. So he was already kind of planning in you the idea you have to look past football. And because that's a challenge for NFL players, right? I mean, folks, you think, oh my gosh, you're making all this money, but then career's up and then you got another 40 years, right? Like, was he coaching you guys on that? Absolutely. Because again, and when I got with Coach Bowden, he, I, maybe he was 70s. He had been in the, the sport for a really, really long time. And when you see cycles and we see athletes who come in, college, NFL, even long NFL careers, he had seen that on several cycles. And uh, just wisdom told him, it was like, look, if I'm going to invest in these players, I need to invest in something that's bigger than football. Yes, we want to win football games. Yes, we want to be good. But more importantly, I want to invest in the things that really, really matter. And again, it was just awesome to see that he did that. And it it was character things as well. How can you be a great father or, or be a great husband? And just things of that nature. And so again, just so fortunate to be able to be under a coach like that. That's incredible. Was there any uh, really great advice that you did not take? Yeah, to be honest with you, not really. There might have been so much advice out there. I might have forgot some of it. But really, we loved him so much and he was so revered around here. It was like when he said it, you would be crazy not to do it. You would not you'd be crazy not to follow it. You know, and of course, you had some guys that wouldn't listen to it. And you had some guys that thought they knew it all. But again, for the guys who bought it and, and took it, they're better people today. They can all point back to him. I I guarantee you most of his players can say, 
I point to Coach Bowden. I'm a different person today. I'm a better person today because of him and his football staff. That's amazing. Now, I know that you, you registered it in 1993. That was that was a Charlie Ward year. That's right. And I remember that season because of the game of the century between uh, FSU and Notre Dame. Were, were you at that game? I know you weren't playing, but I was. Yep. 30 years later, I still remember the hype from that game. What was it like being there? I was a freshman, and it was – Probably the biggest, yeah, the game of the century. And it was Lou Holtz, Bobby Bowden in Notre Dame, South Bend, Heisman Trophy winner. And Notre Dame had an incredible roster. We had an incredible roster. And it was just a clash. And the week leading up to that was just absolutely amazing. And it just, to me, that was great college football. That's why I did it. That's why I went to Florida State to be able to play in games like that. And so that was probably one of the biggest games we played in. Yeah, I still remember that. I was as I was preparing for the interview, I was like, I was like, ten. You guys are, but you were you were ten and zero. Notre Dame was ten and zero. I still remember that game to this day. So here's kind of a philosophical question. Now, a boy can be an extraordinary athlete, but that doesn't mean he's going to make it to the NFL. You clearly had to have a love for the game early on, but one that turned into like a real passion and dedication that would give you the drive to go pro. When did you kind of discover that? Yeah, I probably didn't discover that until probably I got to college. I knew I wanted to go to college, and I always had a dream when I was young to play in the NFL. But I guarantee you, most little boys, when they're out there playing the football and they see NFL on TV, they have, yeah, I want to, I want to play in the NFL. That was me. But in my mind, I was like, yeah, I've got this dream. But who gets their dreams? It's probably not going to happen for me. But I just love it. I love football, and so I'll play it. But in the back of my mind, I knew like. I probably won't make it to the NFL. You know what I'm saying? Those guys are too big, strong, whatever. And it's just, and they tell you the stats when you're really young, less than 1% of 1% ever make it. So really in my brain, it was like, I'm not going. I just love it. And I'm a dream for it. But I just, you know, and it wasn't until I got to to Florida State to where I was like, you know what? I might be able to do it. You know, if, if I really, really get serious and if I really, really buy into the process, the team culture, the hard work that it takes. Yeah, I was a pretty solid athlete, but everybody at Florida State, they were solid athletes. And so it was like, what are the special things that I can do as a player that are small, detailed things that I can consistently do that would separate me to make me better than the next guy? You know, and that's when I really started getting up like, you know what? I may have a shot. Now, it's not going to be easy. It's going to cost me. A lot of times I may want to go out. I may want to do certain things. Look, if you want to go to the next level, there's a lot of things that you can't do. And there's a lot of things that consistently you're going to have to do. And it's not going to be very fun. It's not going to make you popular. But if you want it, you can have it. And once I got to FSU, I started to see that. And I started seeing other athletes that chose that path that they wanted to go. They sacrificed, but they made it. And then I saw other athletes that were like, I want to have a good time and I want to whatever. And they didn't. And so it wasn't until I got to Florida State, started seeing it that, you know what, this is something that I want and I'm willing to pay the price for it. I bet that there's a lesson in there for folks in the car business too, right? Like, you know, you want to be great, go to the workshop, read the book, study, practice, find a mentor. Do you think it's the same? It's absolutely the same. And again, I was at Florida State, you know, and people used to always think we had this magical playbook or we were doing special stuff. And the reality of it was, we were doing the same thing that everybody was doing. The only difference was we were just consistent. We did the right things day in, day out, consistently, didn't miss. And it, when we got on the football field, it made, it made it look like, wow, you guys just have this magical formula. There's no magical formula. The formula is work hard, do what's right 
all the time, every time, and don't miss. And I'm in this car business. It is the exact same thing. Everybody's looking for a new, you know, sales process or a new tool that whatever. And I'm sure there's a couple of them out there, but really ultimate success here is just the fundamentals, the basics. Just do those right every day. Don't miss them and just be consistent with it. The team that can do that is the team that's going to be successful. And again, I learned that in football and I'm like, Man, that really holds true in everything that you do in life. Do the fundamentals the right way all the time. Don't miss, and you're going to be great. I wanted to ask a little bit about dealing with pressure. There's a lot of pressure in the car business. You got to meet the end of the month target. You got the metrics that the OEMs are on you for. Now, when you declared for the draft, you were picked up by the Ravens with the fourth pick, but that was also the first ever player that the Ravens have drafted because they were no longer the Cleveland Browns. There's no pressure there, right? I mean, what was that like? Yeah, it was again, it was it was ultimate pressure for me because, you know, I came in, it was a new city. I was the fourth pick of the draft and I knew that the team was building their franchise around me and what I was doing. And so I didn't have room to be an average player. Matter of fact, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, the first couple of games I had, you know, I went out there and I played pretty good football and I was talking to the coach and I was like, man, I, you know, he was getting on me on some certain stuff. And I'm like, look, I had a pretty good game and I've, I've had a couple of good games. He said, look, son, we didn't draft you to have good games. We draft you to be great. That guy we got in the second and third round, he can be average or good. You have no room to be good. You must be great. We took you on the fourth pick. We expect excellent and great from you. Nothing more, nothing less. Once I realized that, I'm like, wow, I have no room for error. I've got to go out here and I have to perform every day. And not only at a good level, but it has to be at an excellent level. And that's what we had to adjust to. And you know what I did? I adjusted to it because that's what I was supposed to do. So you made four Pro Bowls. You won the Super Bowl, of course, in 2000 and that season. What made that specific group of guys gel so well and accomplish going all the way to a Super Bowl? Are there lessons that we can take from there and apply it to the dealership? Absolutely. The hardest thing to me in in winning a championship, especially in the NFL, is because everybody, you're on an individual contract and you get paid not off of what the team does, but you get paid off of your individual statistics. And so typically in an NFL locker room, when you talk about team goals and team sacrifice, you can throw that out there, but most guys are like, yeah, whatever. When I negotiate my contract, it's not a team goal. It's what I can do for myself. They ask me, what do your numbers look like? And so the key for the coach is to come up with some type of formula. To, how do I get these guys to not focus on their individual contracts, their own individual selves, and focus on the team goal? And I tell you what, Brian Billick, Marvin Lewis, our D coordinator, Jack Del Rio was a part of that. Rex Ryan was a part of that. They came up with a way that when we came into training camp, we were able to somehow put aside our individual goals. We were able to put that aside and say, you know what? We want to be a world champion. And so we did that. We put that aside and said, what does it take for me to be a world champion? And we talked about the sacrifices it may make. Peter, it may cost you some sacks. It may cost you whatever, but the defense requires you to do this. And someone else may get the glory. Ray, it may cost you this. You know, Rod, it may cost you this, but if you want to be a world champion, you can't think about yourself. And for some odd reason, that team gelled and believed in that. And we put aside our individual goals and wants. And I tell you what, especially on defense, we were an incredible defense and we ended up winning that world championship. And the funny thing about that is we won the world championship and really the individual goals that we wanted, we got them anyway. 
and we got more than that. And so, yeah, the lesson in that is you want to be great. Take your eyes off yourself. Lay down your life, lay down your goals, your hopes and dreams for something that's bigger than yourself or for your teammate or for whatever. And when you do that, the team wins and ultimately individually you win. And it's hard to buy into that concept, but the teams and the people that can buy into that, even at this store, if you buy into this concept, yeah, it's not all about you, but it's about the team and the goal, man, the organization will be great. And eventually you'll get your individual stuff as well. Tell us about your path into automotive. I love the the anecdote about Bobby Bowden, you know, having you focus past your college football career, past your NFL career, what are you going to do next? Did you imagine that you would be a car dealer? You know, I really didn't. But I did know when I first got in the NFL, immediately when I got in the NFL, I was wise enough to know that, look, yeah, it's not going to last forever. I've got to find something that I like doing after, or I've got to find a way to invest dollars that when I'm done, I can either transition or when I'm done, I've invested in such a way that, you know, I can financially take care of myself. And so immediately once I got in, I, I was looking for opportunities to park dollars or even that I had an opportunity to find a second career. And, you know, long story short, a, a guy came to me with, with an opportunity to buy into a store. And I didn't know much about automotive, but, you know, uh, long story short, I invested. And one off season, I was like, you know what? I need to go down and check on that store and just kind of see where I put my dollars. And so I went down for a summer and, and checked on it. And I found myself hanging around and liking it so much so that I started working. I, I started working in the parts department. You know, just trying to figure out the parts department. Then I got into service and, and really I, I liked it. I came back that next off season. I just like, I kind of parked myself in a department. I wanted to learn it, you know? And so that's kind of what I did. Every off season just kind of came back and I was like, you know, I really, really, I like it. You know what I'm saying? It's a good business. It doesn't require advanced degrees. It requires a willingness to learn, a go get it attitude. You know, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to follow processes. I'm like, look, I'm good at that. That's kind of what I do in, in football. And so I was like, I think I could be pretty solid at that in the automotive industry. And so long story short, I ended up buying another store and uh, here I am, you know, I retired and, you know, this is what I'm doing. And hopefully, you know, I can continue to get better at what I do. Yeah. So one of the things that the automotive industry analyst, Glenn Mercer says, he says that the dealership business model is actually like a, it's like a little mini conglomerate. It's this extraordinarily complex small business because you have all of these unrelated businesses under one roof. So how did you get to the point where you felt confident in being able to run a parts department or being able to oversee sales or service or that type of thing? Yeah. And let me say this. I don't feel like I just, I have all that completely mastered. I really don't. I think the biggest part for me is, is surrounding myself, my fixed ops director, obviously my GSM, my parts director, my collision center director. I think it's my job to make sure that I research and hire and have the best people that run those departments. But as for me being an expert in all those, I just don't think it's realistic for a guy like me, especially with three years. And again, there's a lot of guys out there, a lot of GMs out there that come from the variable side. They struggle with fixed ops. You know what I'm saying? Or the vice versa. You take a fixed ops person and then you try to put a, make them a GM. They'll struggle with, you know, all the nuances on, on the variable side. And so I've learned there are very few GMs out there that have a grasp of all that. And then you start talking about dealer franchise law and insurance and HR. It's just super, super complex. But again, I, for someone like me, and I think for most people, you have to have good people in place. You have to have good people in fixed and variable, also in accounting to help advise you in those particular 
particular areas. And so for me, it's getting the best team around me where I'm deficient. I have someone strong around me that can advise me, that can help me in that particular area. But also every day I've got to learn because again, all those departments, all those areas, what you learned six months ago, it may have changed. And that plate is continually spinning and changing. And again, the guys who fall behind are the guys who cannot keep up with all the pieces. But the guys who can somehow spin those plates, build the right team around themselves, and to be able to hit all those, to me, are the guys that can be successful. A lot of dealers will join 20 groups. That's a way that they can mentor and you know learn. You get the data. Have you gone into a 20 group? Yeah. I mean, I've been a part of a 20 group for a while and our 20 group is really, really good. So I get a lot of good ideas. And then there's a lot of veterans in there that I'll ask, hey, I'm struggling here. I just can't figure that. What are some of the things that you're doing? And so, yeah, 20 groups are awesome. I mean, I love looking at the composite. I love looking at, you know, you know how I stack up and then being able to, if I have a deficiency, to be able to go somebody and say, hey, can you give me some help? So yeah, our 20 group has been really, really good for me. That's great. Well, let's zoom out and talk about kind of what's going on in the industry. Of course, EV sales. Now, Florida is not one of the California states, so uh, you're kind of a neutral state with regard to EVs. How are they selling in your market? Like, how do, how do you view the EV transition is going in Florida? It's terrible. I mean, again, now Florida's different. I mean, Florida is almost like four or five different worlds. You go to South Florida, that's a different world. I mean, it's an international market. It's a, you know, you go to Central Florida, but where I'm at on the panhandle, I mean, I'm on the panhandle. You could almost call us South Georgia, a South Georgia town. I'm a university town. I've got FAMU, FSU, TCC, but you go five miles out of town, I'm rural. And I've got a lot of people that farm and a lot of people that live on plantations. And so, again, we got our first EV, you know, and it was like, how do we get rid of this thing? You know, to the (laughs) point where like, please don't send me another one. You, You know, right now we're just not ready for it. You know, now... Yes, everything's going EV. I just don't think we're there yet. Now, you can talk hybrid. I mean, we've got people that want hybrid. We got people that, yeah, I, I get hybrid. I get that transition. But again, it's this range anxiety. It's this, look, I work on a farm. I tow, I pull. I mean, is this thing going to, you know what I'm saying? And so there's a lot of questions out there. I live in an apartment. I, where, where do I, you know, I don't have a, a charging station uh, in my garage. I still get a lot of that. And so... Our town, we're not ready for EV. Now, I know the EPA is trying to jam something down our throat that the country needs to be X amount of all EV. Let me tell you something. In this town, it ain't going to happen. And again, they can regulate that and they can try to push EVs down our throat. But I mean, the market has spoken in this area and the market is saying, let's slow down with EV. I mean, yeah, we like internal combustion. We, yeah, and we even like uh, the hybrid system. But there's no way that where I live, California may be different, New York may be different. But from where I live, the market has spoken and said that EV that you have on your lot, we're not buying it. And so, it's not here in my town. I'm glad you brought up geography because that that has so much to do with it. I think it was James Carville, uh, President Clinton's political advisor, who said in Florida, the farther north you go, the farther south you are. That's right. <laughs> and you're, you're right. I mean, the, the panhandle of Florida is completely different than Miami, which is totally different than Silicon Valley. And policymakers not seeing the reality of different geographies and how they play into EV adoption. I think that there, there's, a, there's a chance to get trapped. I'm glad that you brought up uh, hybrids. We had Jeffrey Moore on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's a marketing guy, author of a book called Crossing the Chasm. And he talks about how it's hard for customers to adopt new technologies. And we looked at this and we said, well, you know what? Hybrids could be a way of getting people used to electric vehicles. If you have a plug-in hybrid and it just gets you used to charging it, it gets you used to 
charging it when you're at the grocery store, that type of thing. And I know that Toyota has kind of been a leader in the plug-in hybrid space. So are you seeing a robust demand for plug-ins in your area? I'm seeing a robust demand for hybrids. The plug-in hybrid, again, to me, that's the next step after the hybrid. The plug-in hybrid is to say, look, this thing will be EV, but if you ever get into any issue, man, you've got a gas engine that'll take you and do whatever you need. And so again, we may be behind whatever, but again, the hybrid, that's the next thing that everybody has to really, really adopt. And so we've got a lot of people that have adopted that, but we still have some room with the hybrid. And then after the hybrid, it becomes the plug-in hybrid. Then after the plug-in hybrid, yeah, EV is next to follow, you know. But again, where I'm from, we just like we've got a lot of people that are like, no, I just won't ice. Yeah. It's the customer. It's the customer is gonna make these choices. Yeah. Right. So again, as a dealer, it's easier for me to say ice to hybrid. Let me tell you what this hybrid can do. You don't really have to do anything with this hybrid. You know, all you need to do is just put gas in it. And so it's it's easy to make that transition and then to say, okay, now that you've got this hybrid, what about this plug-in deal? You know what I'm saying? It's, so it's easy to, to stair-step it that way as opposed to ice, 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 EV. You lose people. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're scared and they don't want it. And again, I'm in a position where I have to listen to the market. If my customers don't want it, if they push back on it, I don't ram it down their throat. My job is to give my customers what they want. And right now, most of my customers want ice and hybrid. That's what my customers want. I love EV. I love where it's going, what it what it's trying to do. But again, where I'm at right now, my customer base is just out on the EV thing yet. Yeah, if the customers aren't there. And that's what Moore said. He said, you know, there's there's a chasm in the marketplace and the demand curve between the early adopters and the mass market. And it kind of feels like that's the space that we're that we're going into. Sales are plateauing and we're having a hard time getting from the early adopting customer who's like chasing the latest tech to the person whose life it has to actually work in practically. Right. Yeah. And it, it just kind of and it makes me wonder who was chasing the early tech. Is it the guy chasing the early tech? Is the guy it's this is the second car for me. This is a novelty item for me. This is something that, yeah, I think it's cool. Is that the guy that's chasing the early tech or is it is it the mom or the single mom or the or, or the person, you know, the regular blue collar person is, is saying, look, I'm buying a car and I have to rely on this vehicle to get me where I need to get to. And I've got to make sure that I can afford this vehicle. And I think to me, again, and I'm just guessing the early the adopters were more of novelty people. Yeah, I'm going to give this thing a shot as opposed to the regular guy saying, you know what? No, I've got to have this and depend on it, you know? So EV is just kind of swallowing up all the attention in the room. What's the biggest issue in your world? And that this could be Tallahassee. This could be in the auto business. Like, what do you think is, what's the biggest issue that's impacting folks that, that we're not talking about? Like what's going, what's flying under the radar right now, Peter? You know, I mean, it's just... Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is flying up under the radar, but the price of money is super expensive now. The feds have shot the rates up pretty good. And the price of, of those dollars, I mean, it's hard to borrow money now, you know? And so that is going to, it is going to have an effect on us. You, you know what I'm saying? Again, we've had a lot of pent up demand and we've had a lot of whatever. Eventually, the feds get the rates high enough. They make money too expensive. People are going to push back and say, I can't afford it. And again, maybe that's what the feds want to do. I mean, I mean, our economy has been hot and it's been rolling. And again, I guess what they're trying to do is slow it down and cool it down. Well, again, I'm on the ground. It's starting to work. It really is starting to work and it's becoming harder to get people finance. It's getting it, it's getting harder to get people to even be like, yeah, you want to purchase a vehicle? Here, here's going to be your rate now. No, thank you. I'll pass. And so to me, they've done their job pushing the rates up. And initially when they did it, it was like, oh, man, it's all good. We're not really feeling the effects. We're starting to feel it now. And again, I'm hoping everyone says it's, it's going to be soft and it's going to be a soft landing. I'm hoping it's going to be soft, but 
Who knows? But again, it's just business and selling is it's getting tougher now. Now, I know the one thing you're super passionate about is diversity in the industry. At NADA, we came down and did a whole video with you about the culture that you're setting at your dealership. Tell us about why that is so important to you. For so long, our industry, the minority representation, we just haven't been represented well. We really haven't. And so, again, I think it's only right. If I look at my customer base, if I look at my city, it's only right that the dealer body, the dealer base, and really all small business should reflect the community. It should really reflect the country. And for for so long, it really, really didn't. And for so long, minorities, to me, were kind of shut out, you know. And so it's our responsibility to start opening doors and to start providing opportunities. And again, even for the younger kids in our community, believe it or not, as a dealer, kids will look up to me. And minorities, when they're looking up and saying that they want to be like somebody, it helps when they can look up and say, there's someone that looks like me. There's a car dealer that looks like me. Oh, he did it? I can do it as well. It's another thing when a guy looks up and says, oh, you can be a car dealer. Yeah, maybe, but all the car dealers I see, none of these guys look like me. Why not? You know what I'm saying? And so, again, just people like myself and other minorities that are there, just being an example to say, look, I did it. You can do it. It is huge for those communities. And we have a responsibility, number one, to be good at what we do, but also to create open doors and make paths for these people, people of different backgrounds to be able to succeed and not only just work in this industry, but to be able to own in this industry as well. I love that. One of the most amazing things about the industry is you mentioned it earlier. You don't need a four-year college degree to work in a dealership. You don't need a four-year college degree to own a dealership. You need to work hard. You need to have a growth mindset. And I think you just kind of summed it up right there is, is there are, there are awesome paths for everybody at the dealership. And I, I love what you're doing there. What is your passion work? Like what's the most important thing that you do, Peter, that you don't get paid for? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. My wife and I, we've been in private education for the past 15 years. And when I retired from the NFL, my wife and I, we had this vision to start a nonprofit private Christian school. And it was really more of my wife's idea. And uh, she brought the idea to me and I'm like, I'm a jock. You know, I, you know, I was a decent student, but I just tried to, you know, I just tried to get, get through school. I mean, I was the one that sat in the back, but we knew we loved kids. And we knew we wanted to help out. And a little bit back, I'd serve on on the State Board of Education. So we were like, you know, let's start this school. And so we did. We started the school. And in my mind, I thought we're going to have a really, really small school, maybe 50 kids, and we'll just do a little part. And so we started that school. Long story short, it started off with 30 kids. And now we have close to 400 students, K through 12. And it has just been, it has been awesome. Again, when I first started, it was more like, all right, I'll do the right thing. After two or three years, I was in it and someone asked me and I was like, I love it. I love these kids. I love pouring my life into these kids. I love education. I love the impact that we're making. And I really felt like for the first time in a really, really long time, and again, I wasn't getting paid anything to do it, but I felt like we were really, really making a difference in the community. And we were really, really helping kids out and we could really, really see the impact that it was making. And so again, did that for 15 years, fell in love with this private education. And so I would say my passion you know, outside of the automotive businesses, looking at that next generation of kids, uh, looking at high school students, lower school students, and, and helping those kids find how God has made them find their passion. Some people may go to college. That's great. But, but I've also learned that 
college is not for everybody. There's a lot of trade fields out there. There's a lot of fields in, in my industry. I've got a lot of positions that I'd love to have kids that don't take college degrees. And so just letting kids know that it's okay to be different. It's okay to be talented in a different way. It's just our job as adults and parents and mentors and leaders to determine how you're wired and figure out what path to put you on. It's not our job to say, oh, you're wired this way. No, you need to be like this or you have to go to college. No, you don't. You're made special. You're made unique. You're made to do great things. It's just we have to discover what that is. And so I love doing that. I love pointing kids in the right direction. And I feel like I'm going to continue to do that. That's amazing. Well, what's the name of the school, Peter? And where is it? Community Leadership Academy. And that's here in Tallahassee. Oh my gosh, I got to check that out. That's incredible. Little known fact for our listeners, you actually ran for the state legislature, the state house in Florida in 2007. Does that still interest you as public service uh, in the in the future for Peter Roller? Not one bit. Not, <laughs> again, yeah, and let me tell you something, and, and my ignorance probably helped me out because I didn't really even know what I was stepping into. Somebody <laughs> asked me that, look, you should run for this house seat. And I went, okay, I, I love the community. I love helping out. Well, that helped the community. And I kind of stepped in. And once I got into it, I'm like, oh, this is tougher than I thought. You know, raising money, talking to lobbyists, you know, the politics behind all this stuff. And again, it was a great experience for me because as much as like when you watch the news, whatever party affiliation you are, Republican, Democrat, whatever, it's so easy to sit on one side and bash these political leaders. It's so easy to sit on the side and say they don't care. But I met a lot of those guys. Most of those people in public office they're good people, Republican, Democrat, whatever. They want what we want. They want our kids to have a good community. They want our kids to maybe make a sports team. Their heart is to 99% of them is to make them great. And it gave me a perspective of, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Most of these people are good and they are public servants. And it gave me a greater respect for our political system. And it's a shame when you watch TV, how our leaders get demonized or how they whatever, just because they do. But again, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I got a greater perspective of it. And again, I will say this, it is definitely not in my future anymore. <laughs> so it's so important for dealers, though, to be connected. I mean, all dealers are connected to their community, but it's such a highly regulated industry. So much happens at the Capitol in Tallahassee that impacts your business and, and all the families that depend on Peter Bulware Toyota for their paychecks, right? Absolutely. So you engaged you know, with the governor, with state legislators, brought them, had them do tours at the dealership. Talk about what that's like. Yeah, I definitely engaged with them. And again, I would say, thankfully, in the state of Florida, we have some really, really strong dealer franchise law. You know, it's just we're, we're very fortunate here in, in the state of Florida. But I was fortunate enough to travel up to D.C., I don't know, a few months ago with, with the Toyota team. And as we talked about the EV issue, I mean, and, and we were able to go up to the Hill and just just talk to some of our senators and some of our, our representatives on the EPA mandate that the EPA was really trying to it still is trying to push down down the throat of, of all automotive dealers. And we're like, man, I just, again, this is not a partisan thing. It is just like the question you had. I'm like, look, people in my area don't want them. So, I mean, I know you're making these rules. I know you're trying to be green or whatever, but let me tell you as a grassroots guy or someone down here, the impacts that it makes. And so, yes, as dealers, we must be connected. We must let our voice be heard. We must let these legislators know, because again, those legislators meant they have a thousands of issues that come across their plate. And again, it was interesting to me when we were talking to them, they were like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Is it like that? Really? I mean, so again, we were feeding them with information that they really didn't even know. 
you know? And so it's our job to like, yeah, to, to maybe lobby or whatever, but let's feed them good information because there are, are other lobby groups up there. They're going to feed information that fits one narrative or one agenda. And so again, we as a dealer body, we must make our voice be known here locally with your local state. And also if you've got to go on the national level, make your voice be known. But that's how we survive as an industry. That's how we keep doing what we're doing because if we don't, man, it just policy and rules will get made and we'll get left behind. Yeah. If they're not listening to you, they're listening to somebody else. And, you know, you got to you got to get your voice in there. This is great. So anything on your bucket list or you've had an amazing life? What's out there for Peter Bulwer that you haven't done yet? You know, let me say this. And again, I'm 48 years old. I will say this. I just feel like I've lived the best life on the planet. I mean, literally, I got to play here with Bobby Bowden at Florida State, won a national championship, playing the NFL, won a world championship. I have a nonprofit school that I love. And now to me, maybe I'm a little biased, but I get to represent the best automotive brand in the country, Toyota. I mean, I just, I'm like, there's, I'm trying to think of what else is there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's been great. Now I'll say this. I'd love to, you know, maybe if another opportunity grows, maybe another franchise, maybe another area, I'd definitely be open to that. But again, I just, I feel like I'm living my best life. You know, I'm married with five kids, got a couple of kids going to college. And to be honest with you, man, I just I really, really, you know, with, with the two stores that we have right now, I want to be excellent with it. Again, there's so much to learn. We do some good things, but there's so many things that I look at our store like, man, we can do better there. We can be better there. And so I just want to make our stores excellent. I want to be the best of the best of the best. And again, I just feel like I'm super, super fortunate. And again, as you talked about, you know, minorities, I sure would love to be able to help other minorities live the dream that I've lived and to be able to sit in the seat that I see, uh, I sit in right now. And so again, I'm in a really just a place of saying thank you. I'm thankful to the sports world. I'm thankful for the automotive industry for allowing me in this fraternity. You know, so again, life has been good for me. And again, I want to hopefully pass it down to someone else eventually. I love that gratitude. That's amazing. Can't end the podcast without asking you your thoughts on NCAA football. How's it going to end up this year? I bleed garnet and gold. I really do. You know, and I'm just, (laughs) I'm super heartbroken by the committee's decision to leave an undefeated Power Five team out. You know, that it, it just breaks my heart. I mean, in the history of the 26 years that they've done it, they never have. And for the first time in a, in a really, really, really long time, I think they let politics or something else get ahead of what's right. You know, and so I am heartbroken about it. College sports, they're in a very tough spot right now. NIL, transfer por- portal, all those things. It has completely changed the game. And we're at a pivotal point. You know, and hopefully our college presidents, NCAA, hopefully they can get their their hands around this monster, because if they don't uh, transfer portal, NIL dollars, whatever, could really ruin a sport that was really cool and really good. And so I, I have faith in our presidents. I have faith. Well, I'm not going to say I've got faith in NCAA, but I've got faith in our college presidents that they'll do what's right and they'll preserve a game that we love so much. One thing we asked all of our guests, your first ride, and uh, what's your favorite car? My first ride was a Honda Accord. You know, I had a Honda Accord. My mom bought it for me when I was in high school. Well, bought it for my brother. And then my brother passed it on to the sister. And then I finally got it when it's kind of beat up. And so that was my first. And then the car I love now, I mean, I drive a Toyota Tundra. Love that thing. Four-door crew max. That thing is bad to the bone. And so it's awesome. So I love it. And that's that's the car. That, that's my dream car. And I'm driving it. Awesome. Peter Bolwer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I want to extend a huge thank you to our guest, Peter Bolwer, for joining us today. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating or review. Please tell your friends. 
This has been Driving Ahead from NADA. I'm Jonathan Collegio. Until next time, we'll see you on the road. This podcast was produced in partnership with Amaze Media Lab. 